the old world is dying the new world struggles to be born now is the time of monsters with those words from Gramsci I welcome you once again to the time of monsters I think one of the biggest monsters of the age and it's going to be a monster you know the for the next 20 30 or 40 years is the Supreme Court of the United States which has a 6-3 majority of Republican appointees and that's going to be something very hard to change and we have been seeing what a completely unleashed conservative court is willing to do in the last few years, most notably with the Dobbs decision overturning the constitutional right to reproductive freedom. But I think Dobbs is just the beginning. I think there were some liberal commentators and even the courts themselves that kind of tried to push off Dobbs as a one-off, like saying like, you know, well, abortion is such an exceptional issue that they would take the step of overturning not just one, but like many constitutional, many previous court decisions that had affirmed the right to abortion. But that, you know, like after that, you know, the, the court might draw in its claws a little bit because, you know, like they'd be afraid of public opinion. Well, it turns out not to be the case. We Over the last few weeks, we've seen a host of court decisions that in their totality point towards the use of judicial power to reshape American society along very reactionary lines. And I think yeah, how reactionary can be seen in the kind of frequent references in various court decisions to the French Revolution. This came partially through the liberal justice Brown Jackson, who sarcastically noted that in overturning affirmative action, the court is showing let them eat cake obliviousness, suggesting that the court is like Marie Antoinette. And But the funny thing is that the reactionaries on the court accept this analogy, but, but they see the French Revolution as bad. The uh, Justice Roberts, on that same decision, said that the, on a decision involving student debt, said that the idea of modifying rules to allow student debt is the same way in which the French Revolution modified the status of French nobility. It has abolished them and supplanted them with an entirely new regime. Well, you know, like I think most listeners here are probably not fans of the Armstrong regime and probably think like it's good to get rid of aristocratic rule, but not, not, not Justice Roberts and not Justice Clarence Thomas, who had a, in their abortion rulings often cited in competing ways the ideas of Edmund Burke, the counter-revolutionary theorist of reflections on the revolution in France. So this is very much a sort of counter-revolutionary court, counter the what they see as the usurpation of the true America by the New Deal and by the sexual and social liberation of the 1960s. So I think in, there's a lot to unpack with what the court is doing, and we'll do it over many subsequent podcasts. But for this episode, I, I really want to like look at what is the social vision that is driving this court as it overturns affirmative action, as it disallows Biden administration attempt to give relief to student debtors, and as it like expands the free speech rights of homophobes to deny service to queer customers. What is the overriding vision that holds all these decisions together? And to discuss all this, I'm very happy to have frequent podcast guest, Maura Donegan, who's a columnist at The Guardian and who has kind of made it a specialty of court watching, watching and has written many excellent columns analyzing the court. So once again, welcome to the podcast. And maybe to start off, like, what do you think is the, the vision of the court? Hi, Jeet. It's great to be here. So I think this is 
a term where we can really see the continuation of the project that the court made very visible in Dobbs, right? Which is a project of rolling back the past century or so of social project progress of attempts to fully honor the citizenship of women and people of color and to encourage upward mobility of like previously disenfranchised groups, right? So you saw that in Dobbs, the attempt to undo the sexual revolution. You see it this term in for a free creative, a case that dramatically limits the coverage of public accommodation, civil rights law for gay people under a very flimsy and strange freedom of speech arguments. And then you especially see it, and I think what will be the landmark case of this term, which is Robert's decision overturning affirmative action in college admissions. And I hope I hope we also get to talk to, I think, a very significant, talk about a very significant case in which the court eliminated Biden's student debt relief <laughs> program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think I think it is right to frame this in the terms that you have, which is like in terms of the broader politics that really go back to a century. We, we've had, you know, like within the American constitutional order, which is already, you know, very conservative in many ways, we have had attempts to expand economic freedom and upward mobility through the New Deal and social policy and also the expansion of civil rights and sexual freedom. And, and, and the court really is sort of drawing a line and going against that. And I mean, it, it seems on the affirmative action decision, there was a curious kind of exemption, which I think really brings out the nature of what is seen. It's not because they said that the issue of military academies is perhaps separate from this decision, overturning affirmative action. And in previous decisions, it had been suggested that there is like a military rationale of why you would want affirmative action in military academies. That is to say, you have a lot of people of color that are enlisted troops. You want officers, a certain number of people of color as officers to have unit cohesion and for morale purposes. And Justice Jackson, in dissenting from the nation of affirmative action in higher education with this exemption, basically said that the, the, what the court is saying is that you want people of color in the bunker, but not the boardroom. So if and I think that that framing is very useful because it really points to like it's not just specific court decisions on this policy or that. It's like what sort of America do you want? So you know, taking that as a starting point, like what sort of America are we seeing being created by the courts? Well, it's a it's a dark, narrow America, one with very firm and <laughs> immovable hierarchies of race and gender, one in which there will not be institutional interventions meant to ameliorate those hierarchies or to ease the path of people to lift themselves up out of the degradations imposed by those hierarchies. And it's one in which, you know, there there is a sort of requirement to blindness. I mean, you mentioned Katanji Brown Jackson's comparison of the court to Marie Antoinette. She says, like, with let them eat cake obliviousness, this court, like, you know, insists that that we cease to acknowledge the reality of how racism impacts American life, you know, and that's it's it's something that I think sort of gives away the game a little bit in the affirmative action decision in particular. You see the conservative justices 
Chief Justice John Roberts, who wrote the controlling opinion, indulges this in this. But I think the real illustrative example is from the concurrence from Clarence Thomas, who tells this story of the moral arc of, of American racial projects, progress, right? It's a, it's a story that he starts with Plessy, Plessy versus Ferguson, which is a case in which a black man tried to board a train, was put into a segregated section, and the Supreme Court ruled that it was constitutional to segregate on the basis of race so long as the separate spheres were deemed equal, separate but equal, right? And this was a, in Thomas's view, a way of the court acknowledging race and in itself was wrong. And then Thomas ends the story at Brown versus Board of Education, which in his mind was the removal of race consciousness from the law. But it's completely ahistorical, as Justice Jackson points out in her dissenting opinion, because Brown and the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause that it was based on really required race-conscious remedies. And this is the substance of Jackson's dissent, right? Like you cannot actually work to eliminate race hierarchy and to provide equal protection for people who have been punished by that hierarchy, particularly Black Americans, without race consciousness, right? And there's this sort of attempt to take the moral cover of the civil rights movement and divest it of that moral project on the part of the conservatives, right? They're saying, no, 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 it's race blind. I don't see color, man. John Roberts, rather, uh, keeps referring to the colorblind constitution. And, you know, it's just, it's a farce because they know as well as we do that we do not live in a colorblind country, right? They're trying to divest the government of the ability to deal with the realities on the ground of American life and to try and ameliorate them for the betterment of its citizens. And I think, you know, I think this military academy exception as justice jackson pointed out and as you pointed out she is like incredibly telling right because the argument made by the military in favor of the benefits of diversity is almost identical to the argument made by these civilian universities for the benefits of diversity it's like oh these people bring in unique skills and perspectives that are useful in our educational environment these people boost morale for other members of Minority groups who can, you know, see their own experiences reflected there. These people help us have cohesion and a sense of community by being part of it. You know, it's, it's the same argument. And it's, you know, in favor of the benefits of diversity in this forward-looking way. The remedial, we need to remedy the, just, the injustice of the past, has been eliminated by the court in previous precedent, right? So we can't. A university or a college cannot make the argument in justifying its affirmative action, race-conscious admissions policies that we want to do something different and to try and work towards creating a different America. But they can say this is beneficial for us as an institution. And that argument was only accepted by the court for the universities that shovel it, their students off into the line of fire and war and not into those that funnel them into the halls of power and influence. You know, when we talk about race-conscious admissions, the fact of the matter is we're talking about like a fairly small but disproportionately influential number of colleges and universities. Most American colleges, post-secondary institutions, they admit the majority of the people who apply. That's the kind of school I went to. It's the kind of school most people go to, right? It's a place where you apply, you're probably going to get in. But those are not the institutions that manufacture our elite. Right. The institutions that manufacture our elite, places like Harvard, Yale, 
Stanford, Columbia, you know, even like Georgetown, like they admit five, six, 10% of the people who apply. And those are the passport mm-hmm. to leadership, to prosperity, to upward mobility in a way that other schools still aren't, right? And by yeah. forbidding those institutions from seeking out a diverse class, what the court is doing is ensuring that the hyper elite that is created by those institutions will remain very, very white. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it should be said that the larger admissions policies of the universities are all geared towards elite reproduction and not towards any sort of like educational goal. And that, you know, that's why you have things like legacy scholarships, sports scholarships, special admissions to people with low grades whose parents like Jared Kushner's you know, donate millions of dollars. Yeah, really, yeah. You're, you're trying to create a student body that has one particular purpose, which is elite reproduction. And until this decision of elite reproduction included, you know, at least some affirmative action to try to create a diverse elite. And I mean, just as a, as I said, I want to talk about the sort of social vision. And it seems like in some ways that sort of colorblind policy with no attempt at diversifying elite has actually been tried. And one sees it actually in Europe, where there's never been affirmative action, where you do have, especially like in France, you know, certain elite schools that are play a huge disproportionate role in shaping who rules, and in, in England as well. And, you know, like what you end up getting is something very similar to America, except like perhaps even more white. Uh, and, and uh, you know, like just looking at these sort of riots that are breaking out in France, I, I don't think that, that the clear blindness has quite worked solving any of their problems. But then, now, now, and I wanted to tell something more about that elite aspect, because like, you know, from, from a certain point of view, one could say, well, okay, you know, this these affirmative action policies only affect a small number of people. And... You know, it's not really great that Harvard has so much power, right? So one could envision an alternative policy, you know, and there are people from a, a left background who are kind of sympathetic to that, where, you know, okay, let's just like, you know, raise taxes, especially on places like Harvard that don't, as far as I know, don't even pay property tax. But like, like let's just like in, destroy the capacity of these institutions to generate elite and then, you know, give a lot more money towards colleges and universities that are public, that have a much wider admissions policy, and have that as a path for, for mobility. Now, the interesting thing is that in a separate decision, the courts are kind of foreclosing that possibility as well. <laughs> so, so with the student debt thing, I mean, like, I mean, one could look at it in sort of legal terms that the court framed it as, which is that they granted themselves a huge amount of power, saying like, well, because this is such a, a huge decision, which again, like, you know, Justice Roberts compared to the French Revolution, he said, well, we have to turn this back because it is as huge of a significant matter as overturning aristocratic rule. And, and for, for that reason, the courts have, have the right to say that. So, so that's the sort of legal argument. But the social vision that is like there is, you know, like really foreclosing like a major path of upward mobility. It is like, you know, basically the people who needed student debt, who took it out, who were encouraged to take it out by government policy are going to be like, you know, like stuck with this for like forever. Yeah. So you're talking about the decision that came down on Friday in which the Supreme Court eliminated and declared illegal Biden's program to 
forgive up to $10,000 of student debt or $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients. They declared this an excessive use of agency authority under something called the Major Questions Doctrine, which is sort of a vibes-based, <laughs> very new legal doctrine in which the Supreme Court declares that in issues that are of too great political or social significance, and that significance is determined by, you know, the court, cannot in fact be delegated to administrative executive agencies. They have to be decided by Congress. And because Congress is not functional and does not decide anything, that functionally means that all of these like quote unquote major questions have to be decided by the courts, right? So it's a sort of wraparound way that the court has delegated itself a lot of power to enforce this social vision. And yeah, I'm in agreement with you. I'm in, I'm very sympathetic to the idea that really the way to make places like Harvard and Yale and these elite institutions egalitarian is to kind of dismantle them brick by brick and like redistribute their assets, you know, maybe with the exception of the one that employed me, which I would like to keep <laughs> operating for a little while. But, you know, there's a, a an argument to be made, right, that relying too heavily on affirmative action to try and mitigate the harms of the past and to meaningfully integrate talented people of color into the elite just does sort of rely on reproducing those elite structures that are themselves like quite unjust, right? Like I get that. But in the meantime, there is no way to institute a more robust policy change because the Supreme Court has the very conservative Supreme Court has allocated to itself absolute power over these major policymaking questions. Yeah. Uh, and has now foreclosed an exceptionally popular, economically essential, humane <laughs> intervention of the Biden administration to forgive this debt that was taken on by people who have exactly one way into the middle class through education that has been placed financially out of reach for them. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so again, like what I want to underscore here is that there's a kind of social vision that is in place and perhaps I'll like sort of thread the needle a little bit. The, the, the military exemption aspect is not disconnected from the student debt. There was like a Republican congressman who basically like came out against student debt relief because saying like, you know, well, military recruitment is already low. Like, how are we going to recruit people <laughs> if we don't have this, this stick of student debt uh, as a way of making military, uh, joining the military much more attractive? So, so, so again, like, you know, like it is a vision of society where like, if you're poor, you know, the, the pathword of upward mobility will be, you know, to join the military. And as they say in Starship Trooper, you know, service equals citizenship. So the, so the, you know, like a quite dire dystopian view. The other court case where I think like, you know, one can see a social vision coming out is CR3 Creative versus LNS, which is, you know, like really calls back the civil rights of gay people by creating this kind of exemption through free speech. Do you want to like just talk about a bit about that and like, you know, like where where we think this is going to like lead head towards? Yeah. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy and delicious breads, buns and tortillas? These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Yeah, so 303 Creative versus Alenis is a interesting little case. 
out of Colorado. It is sort of a rerun of Masterpiece Cake Shop, which was a case, I think, five years ago in which the Supreme Court upheld Colorado's civil rights public accommodations law that requires businesses to serve all comers equally, including gay people. And they carved a huge hole in that and other public accommodation civil rights laws. This is a case in which a website designer or rather an aspiring website designer named Lori Smith, who says that she wants to A, start a wedding or website design business, B, design wedding websites, and C, exclude that service from gay couple customers, including putting up a sign at the homepage of her website saying that she will not serve gay couples. She has never been asked to design <laughs> a wedding website for a gay couple or seemingly for anyone. This is a hypothetical case. At the time she filed, she didn't even have her website design business. She has one now. The websites are not they're not gorgeous. It's very like graphic design is my passion, you know. And there does seem to have been, according to reporting by Melissa Gira Grant in the New Republic, that was like confirmed this weekend by the Washington Post, there does seem to have been sort of a fabrication of a request. There was a, you know, an affidavit issued by her lawyers at this like conservative legal outfit called the Alliance Defending Freedom that basically constantly brings anti-gay cases and, and anti-abortion cases. And they, you know, signed a sworn statement saying that she had been asked to make a wedding website by a guy who wanted to, you know, get married and it had this guy's, you know, name and contact information. Reporters called him. He says, hey, I live in another state. I happen to be heterosexual and have been married to a woman with children for many, many years. And no, I never made this request. So there's, you know, some speculation that perhaps that was invented. But, you know, there's this is this is a recurring theme in this court that standing and facts are kind of not relevant. To, like, in the I, I think that that I mean, I want to just dwell on that point just very briefly, because I think that there's two different ways that people are talking about this, one of which is like, I don't think very useful, which is I think that there's some liberals who have been trying to raise these issues as a way to, like, you know, challenge the ruling. With the idea that, you know, like, well, you know, they didn't fill out the proper forms. They didn't, uh, like, you know, don't right. all the T's and they didn't do the, follow the rules. And we, we got them, right? Like, you know, as if, like, you know, if you have the right formula, the right set of words, you can overturn this. And I think that that is, like, if that's what people are thinking, that is totally, you know, like, not going to work. And it's not a useful way to think because it just, it, it sort of implies that, you know, like, if the courts follow the rules, we'd be okay. I think that the more, pertinent way to use it is to like illustrate what a power grab the court is engaged in, how arbitrary it is and capricious and that, you know, they can get away with it. And I, I, you know, like, you know, I'd mentioned the French Revolution before, and I think the greatest representation of the French Revolution is not Edmund Burke's reflection of the revolution in France, but Mel Brooks's History of the World Part One, whereas Louis XVI, Brooks says, you know, it's good to be the king. You know, and yeah. imposes himself upon everybody in the most disgusting ways possible. And I think that the, for John Roberts and his court, you know, it's good to be the king. And, and if, you're, if you're the king, you can just like, you know, make up a case out of whole cloth. And, you know, that's totally based on fabrication. Issues of standing don't matter. And I think that that's the way to understand what is happening here. You know, like not to say, gotcha, you didn't fill it all, you know, dot all the I's and cross all the T's. But like, you know, like this is a court that really does not care about like, you know, 
any set rules that can stand in the way of their social vision. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. And, you know, God bless the liberal proceduralists who think that we can sort of preserve the social progress of the past century through these kinds of gotcha, like technicalities. But like the fact is that it is the, the frivolity, the absence of fact, this is not a sort of bit of sloppiness on the court's part. It is an assertion of their power, right? So, you know, the 303 creative gay rights case is an imaginary case. There's been no injury. The same term in the student debt relief case, Missouri sued on behalf of a loan servicing agency in the state that was independent from the state government and, in fact, very much did not want to be a part of the lawsuit, had no interest in being a party to the lawsuit. Missouri, in order to sue nominally on, on, on this debt servicing agency's behalf, had to like subpoena all of their records because they weren't cooperating voluntarily. You know, they didn't want to, they didn't want to do it. And they said, you know, actually your theory of our injury that we're going to lose all this money because the debt forgiveness is actually not consistent with our own calculations of how this is going <laughs> to work out for us. And then, you know, this also echoes a case called Kennedy versus Bremerton from last term in which this football coach in a suburb of Seattle wanted to pray at the games. And he said that he was doing these private little sideline prayers to himself. And in fact, what he was doing was standing like at the 40 yard line in the middle of the field and having all of his student athletes come with him, yeah. including a lot of, you know, atheists and non-Christian athletes who said they felt pressured and, you know, their religious freedom was being infringed upon, but the court sort of declined all these facts and all these photographs of him yeah. <laughs> and so you know declined to consider all this to like rule as if the fiction that he was doing these private prayers to himself was the facts of the case so you know the imperviousness to that i think it's just an assertion of their impunity and their ability to yeah. assert their social vision without any kind of democratic check mm -hmm. without any kind of need for restraint you know there was some commentary yeah. like sort of before this last like blockbuster week of rulings from the court and it's like oh you know roberts threw out the independent state legislature case because it was too sloppy and he threw out the voting rights act case because he was too because it was too sloppy and he wants really better cases from these liberal from the conservative legal movement that won't embarrass him and i don't really buy that i think roberts was saving his political capital for affirmative action for student debt, for gay rights. I don't think he really cares if it's a sloppy case because he rules in favor of sloppy arguments all the time. The sloppiness is an essential part. And I would add to this, this issue of fact, that like uh, often the courts, they make arguments based on history. And like, if you talk to historians, you know, the kind of history that one finds in sort of Clarence Thomas's decisions and Alito's decisions, it's just a completely, you know, Oh, fantastic fabricated history that, you know, might convince someone from the sort of Claremont Institute, but like, you know, like would be rejected by the vast majority of historians, but it doesn't matter. Like, like, like I think it's good to record these violations of facts and norms and procedures and rules as part of a project to delegitimize the courts, to say that, you know, the courts are this completely arbitrary institution. But I, you know, I do worry that like, Sometimes it is a case of like kind of like liberal fact checking and fact checking by itself without like a political project doesn't get you very far. You know, you could only you can't get very far by saying like, well, that quote doesn't really exist. Like you actually have to have like, you know, what's the goal of bringing up these violations 
of facts, norms, and, and presentations of incredibly sloppy arguments. It doesn't really make sense unless your goal is to delegitimize the courts. Right. But we definitely know, I definitely agree with you, but I, I, we also know what the purpose of the lies is. Yes, yes, yes. This very clear social agenda. Yes. A very regressive social agenda. And just to get back to straight up free creative, because we sort of strayed a little. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's a really important case. Because mm-hmm. what public accommodation civil rights law has said for decades is that if you are operating a business that is available to the general public, you don't get to pick and choose which members of protected classes you're going to serve. If it's a protected class, you have to serve them. And gay people have been a part of most state civil rights laws, public or municipal civil rights laws for a very long time, right? It says this is one of the characteristics you're not allowed to discriminate on. You're not allowed to say you're not going to serve people on the basis of their race. You're not allowed to say you're not going to serve people on the basis of their religion. You're not allowed to say you're going to not going to serve people on the basis of their sex, which in most interpretations of sex and then, you know, also included specifically in a lot of these particular laws includes gender expression, gender identity, and sexual orientation. Uh, And this case is nominally about free speech, right? It says Gorsuch, in his majority opinion for all six of the Republican appointees, says that Lori Smith, who again has never been asked to make a gay website, is being forced to speak in favor of gay marriage against her beliefs by the civil rights law. And what that distinction does is it completely obliterates the distinction between commercial speech, commercial conduct, and private speech, right? Yes. And that is basically the end for public accommodation civil rights law because this opinion that Gorsuch issued has no limiting principle. There's nothing in there to say, okay, you know, this is actually kind of what I was afraid they were going to do. I was afraid they were going to say, Gender, sex, sexual or sexual orientation specifically, those just matter less. Like they are just not as robustly protected by civil rights law as race is. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that would have been terrible. That would have been uh, an unraveling of all kinds of civil rights protection for gay people, for trans people, for women, for anybody who is gender nonconforming. It would have sort of started unraveling the sweater. But what they actually did was kind of worse, (laughs) which they said that, you know, if you can make any kind of argument that your commercial enterprise is expressive, even a stretch argument, such as when the commercial enterprise is website design. But, you know, it could be, you know, like making ice cream sundaes. Like it could be anything. Uh, sure, 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 sure. Yeah, then you have the right to discriminate based on identities, regardless of, you know, the protected class of so the people who seek to give you their money. There was actually... No limiting principle in terms of who you could discriminate against. The nominally limiting principle was it has to be expressive speech. Like you, it can't be. Actually, I can't even imagine what it can't be. Right? Like yeah, no, exactly. No, I mean, no, I mean like, this is this is the exact issue because everything is expression, right? Like this is you know like once you sort of semiotics was developed as like a field, it ran into this problem that like everything is a sign because humans are immersed in culture. Uh, yeah. and, and so, 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 like, like, you know, Donald Trump famously wrote a book or had a ghostwriter write a book called The Art of the Deal. And so the premise of that is deal making is an art. 
you yeah. know? And then yeah. he, I think he, he said, like, you know, like, how, like, Michelangelo works in paint and Hemingway works in prose. You know, I work in the deal. And, right. you know, like, 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 under this decision, like, I, I don't see how, you know, like, that could not be applied. Deal making can be seen as an art. And therefore, like, if you're, you can't limit the free speech of deal makers with civil rights laws. I, I just, I, I think you're exactly right that there's no limiting principle. And this is especially true of this court, which has repeatedly used free speech rights and expanded them into the commercial realm and expanded them into business activity, which is a real innovation. And so, you know, like, you know, I think listeners will be aware of the sort of, you know, the doctrine that money is speech and that, you know, was used to challenge election spending laws. So United. if money, if money is, yeah. huh? That's yeah. since United, 2010. Yeah, money, yeah, yeah. money becomes speech, yeah. Yeah, so if money is speech and, and you have an expressive right to free speech that overrides anti-discrimination laws, then, like, what is the limit? Like, you know, like, right. now, now, this decision might be narrowly expressed in terms of, like, expressive industries, but, like, does anyone doubt that, like, you know, like, the, the, the range of industries that will claim this right could very easily expand in the coming years? Oh, no. What's going to happen is that any bigot who wants to is going to make an argument under this very capacious definition of like art expression that their business is expressive and that they therefore get to discriminate against disfavored groups, right? That's going to happen. And what's going to happen is that the court is going to invent the limit on who you get to discriminate against when when they want to, right? Yes. It's going to be a flood of litigation, a flood of discrimination, a lot of incredibly just potent dignity harms, right? Imagine mm. like you're trying to celebrate your wedding and you have to go from vendor to vendor and like check and see if they're going to serve you or not, or if they're going to be a bigot about it and like i'm just trying to i'm trying to buy thousands of dollars worth of flowers and and you're telling me like well actually in leviticus you know it's insane and it imposes this terrible dignity harm on anybody who's a disfavored group who no longer has access to the public commercial sphere whose dollar no longer counts the same amount as anybody else's and there's just no cap on this to say where it ends and where it's going to end is where the supreme court justices find it personally distasteful and that's just not a, a foundation for a functional pluralistic society like they are going to say personally okay well we think we don't like it when you do this for interracial couples like we mm. think that goes too far but we don't like the homos <laughs> so like their yeah. civil rights protections are just weaker now and there's just there's nothing principled about this it reduces to their policy preferences which is a problem because nobody fucking voted for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. They have, no, no. like, screwed all this power to themselves from these places of unelected, unaccountable, and increasingly absolute influence. So I think I would love to close out talking about the politicization of the court and the process yes. for court reform. Yes. No, I, 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 think, I think that that's a sort of, like, the logical ending. As I said before... You know, like if you want the one word sentence about what this court is all about, it's it's good to be the king. And, and it is a real assertion of like anti-democratic power. And then the question is, you know, what, what do we do about it? You know, and well, I want to hear what you have to say, because I, I have some pretty distressing thoughts about what is likely to happen. But 
let's let's see what yeah i mean what is likely to happen is that you know we right now have a democratic party and particularly a president who has absolutely no appetite to confront the crisis presented by the courts right after the affirmative action decision i think joe biden went about as far as he has ever gone when he called the supreme court weird he's like this is a weird one <laughs> or he said they weren't normal or something like that and then somebody goes well you know would you can reconsider court expansion this like basically the only option that will be a decade-long project and that needs to be pushed in the bully pulpit of the presidency to to get you know popular support and become possible and he goes no 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 i don't want to politicize the court <laughs> just, like, i think it's a little fucking late i think no, the court is very political they politicize themselves no. and what the democratic party is choosing to do in refusing to meaningfully engage with court expansion, term limits, any kind of rotation system, uh, is they have dedicated themselves to their own impotence, right? What we have right now is a situation where any policy agenda enacted by Democrats, any kind of effort they make to use power when they're able to get it, is going to be... Yeah. They've given themselves carte blanche. They've shown themselves very willing. They have maximalist ambitions to undo lots of social progress and they have zero qualms about curtailing the power of the elected branches and so it's you know it's either we have a weakened supreme court or we have only a supreme court in terms of our policy governance and it we're hurtling really disturbingly quickly towards the latter yeah no absolutely yeah yeah no it, it does not seem like Right now, the political will to have this fight is there. Although I will say, you know, Democratic Party is obviously a coalition, and one is seeing, like, you know, among some lawmakers, at least more bold talk about the court expansion. What I'm not seeing, but which, you know, I, I think what has to come is like, you know, like actually limiting the power of the courts in terms of, you know, what cases that they can take. But it, it is really a sort of a, cri a crisis of democracy. Like, it, it is. And the only, I always like to end on some sliver of hope. And the one sliver of hope I, I will say is, you know, the, the court's reputation has never been lower in the modern era. You know, like perhaps it was lower, like after Dred Scott in the 19th century. But in, the, in terms of the modern era of like polling, you know, like I, I saw a recent poll where like only 29% of the population has a favorable view of the courts. And, you know, so one would have to think that among the public, at least, there's a kind of recognition of this legitimacy crisis. And, you know, the only question is, like, you know, like what political form this dissatisfaction will take. And I have to agree with you. You know, Joe Biden, whatever, you know, one can say about in his favor, he is on this issue, not the fighter that is needed. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. So, so anyways, thank you once again for being here. I actually, I think we're going to have to like revisit this. There's a lot more we could have said about this court session and, and about this. I, I think really one of the fundamental issues for the, the future of American democracy. Thank you so much for having me, Keith. It's always really fun to talk to you.